The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. This remodel that we're doing that has us kind of all moved around, we're doing in, in large part because we need more children's space, which is a good thing. So bear with us over these next several months and Let's pray together and walk through this and be excited about what God's doing. Also, speaking of excitement, I want to congratulate the Lady Bees on their state championship. Good news for Academy. Good news for Central Texas. Um, and then wanted to share with you guys just really quickly, just got back from Rwanda with a couple of my kids and Harold Williams and one of his daughters, and we were there training some of the youth in the churches there, Pastor Salatio there in the middle, and on your right is Jean-Baptiste, his son, who translates for us, and we were training some of those youth to be prepared to work with our youth as the team goes over later, and then the guy that is on the far left, this is Pastor Jacob, and Pastor Jacob is 79 years old, he's been ministering for 48 years in Rwanda, he serves in a village that none of us have heard of and couldn't pronounce if we had. And Pastor Jacob is the reason that Celestine Masakura is in ministry, who leads Alarm and who um, is responsible for thousands of pastors being trained in Central and East Africa. He mentored Celestine, he mentored his own son named Ezrin, who's a pastor that oversees a denomination of hundreds of churches in Rwanda. He, he mentored Salathiel and many, many other pastors who are impacting their nation. So it's a privilege just to meet him and get connected with such a faithful guy who will live and die and preach the gospel and by most of the world be forgotten, but is making a kingdom impact where he is. And I, I thought what a privilege for us to partner with folks such as this as he was part of our training. So thank you for sending us. And of course, as Shannon mentioned in our announcements, we've got 150 kids going to impact camp this week, and then they'll come back and we'll pray for them next Sunday night as they go and share the gospel throughout our city and area. If you want to be part of that, we'd love for you to come join us next Sunday night, and there's child care available if you are SVP. So let's pray for that now, in fact. God, we thank you for young men and women from our body who are going to go and train and prepare. And God, we pray that in this time of training that certainly they would get knowledge that they need, but also they would get nourishment for their souls that they need, that they would be filled up and be ready to pour themselves out for a week in our community. God, we thank you for the years and years and years of labor and the people who've come to faith because of impact and things like it. And so God, we pray that you would bless this year again that you'd be glorified this year again, and that we'd see people come to know your Son. Lord, be with us as we enter into a new series today about questions. And God, let your Word be a rock that we can stand on when all the questions are done. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are starting this new series. We sent out a survey several weeks ago that hundreds of you responded to there's a survey about questions. That's what we're talking about this summer. Questions. What are the biggest questions that, that people have for God in our culture? And so we took the surveys and saw what are the most popular answers? What are the questions that you want answered? And so going starting today from the ninth most popular, moving toward the first, we're going to answer some of those questions. 
So the first one, right out of the bat, they gave me a really easy one. Why does the God of the Old Testament seem so different than the God of the New Testament? That should be no problem to answer, right? See, questions are are good things. They're a means of understanding, a way of learning and finding out the truth. If you're in school, a good teacher will tell you, if you don't understand, just ask a question. See, the more important the subject matter, the more significant the answers we seek may be. And when it, when it comes to God, it would seem that there's no end to the amount of questions that we collectively have. So for this summer series, here, here we go. Why does the God of the Old Testament seem so different from the God of the New Testament? Or asked an, another way, why... Why is the God of the Old Testament full of wrath and the God of the New Testament full of love? Because that's really the rub. You don't hear a lot of people asking, why is the God of the Old Testament full of love and the God of the New Testament full of love? They don't tend to think that He is. It's a question a lot of people have. Sometimes it's in the form of a question. Sometimes it's in the form of a statement. Terry Bowden, former football coach at Auburn, talked about what it was like to play against his dad, Bobby Bowden, who was an outspoken Christian and was the football coach at Florida State. And he would say, man, my dad's a New Testament Christian Sunday morning, but he's Old Testament Saturday night. Not fun to play against. I have a friend that to this day says, you know, I would follow Jesus if it weren't for the God of the Old Testament. So what can our responses be to this question about the seeming inconsistency? Because that's what it is. It's a seeming inconsistency about a God who says He never changes. There are lots of responses, and we'll cover a few this morning. We're going to start in 2 Peter chapter 1. So Peter says in verse 16, For we did not follow... We did not follow cleverly devised myths or cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, With whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. See, Peter, James, and John, they are there with Jesus on what we call the Mount of Transfiguration, and Jesus is transformed, and they behold his glory, and God says, This is my son. He says, We were eyewitnesses. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. What's that? The Old Testament. You'll do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So Peter has this great confidence in the Word of God, the Old Testament, which is what he had then. And Paul says it another way to his young man who he mentors, his child in the faith, Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, 14-17, But as for you, continue in what you've learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood 
You've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So how do we answer this question? Big questions, good questions, sometimes, sometimes we tend to be afraid of questions, and I really don't think we ought to be. I can remember the church where I came to faith, there was a guy that would kind of help young believers along, but sometimes we would ask questions. There are just questions that pop up as you read the Scripture, and, and he would say, you shouldn't ask questions like that, boy. And you could see in his eyes, he, he just didn't have an answer. Now, three weeks from now, there's a guy that's going to be here that you don't want to miss. His name is Dan Wallace. He's one of the foremost uh, textual critics of the Scripture in the world. And he'll be here talking to us about the authority of Scripture. He came and spoke to some of our leaders a couple of years ago. And he told the story about his son. His son had gone to college. He's at his first semester in college. And he calls. He's coming home for the weekend. And he says, Dad, I've got this ethics professor. And he's an atheist. And he has some questions that I don't know how to answer. Can, can we talk? And he said, I can remember saying to my son, yeah, bring your video game system home. We'll play games and talk about it. Absolutely. That sounds like a great time. He said, why, why in the world would we be afraid of questions when we are following a God of truth? If God is who He says He is, then questions about Him shouldn't make us afraid. Sometimes, though, questions are, are really just statements. And sometimes statements are belligerent and, and angry. And I, I think maybe a guy who's the best example of making statements against God, sometimes in the form of a question, sometimes just all-out bashing, is a guy named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is an atheist professor from England. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. It's kind of among popular writers, it, it, or popular reading, it, it's gotten a lot of acclaim. But really, really good academic atheists will say Dawkins' arguments actually don't really help us. Um, Ravi Zacharias has a book called Jesus Among Secular Gods. He deals with the specific arguments that Dawkins makes and just kind of shows the flaws in those arguments. But let's listen to how Richard Dawkins asks the question. He doesn't just say, how is the God of the Old Testament different than the God of the New Testament? Why are they different? Here's what he says about the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. <laughs> Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. So Richard Dawkins is kind of subtle, not really forthcoming in what he thinks about the God of the Old Testament. I, I bet he is a blast at parties, right? See, it's, it's interesting because when I hear him, he doesn't sound like a guy who doesn't believe in God. He sounds like a guy who's angry. If he's the, if he's the, 
most awful character in all of fiction. If this is really fiction, then what are you so bothered by? That's really the question. Why does the God of Old, Old Testament seem so harsh? That's, that's what it boils down to. And so we've got to answer that. What are our responses? And we're going to talk about three responses today. These aren't all the responses, but I think there's some that matter. And the first is this, that revelation is progressive. That is, <coughs> that's biblical revelation. is progressive. There's this progress to the story. There is an unfolding. Or as Don Carson says it this way, what was promised in the Old Testament is spoken of more fully and openly in the New Testament. The Old Testament is pointing toward, it's leading up to, it's stirring affections and minds toward a coming Messiah for Israel and Savior of the world. The Old Testament is about promises made. And if it weren't for the God of the Old Testament, we would never have received the New Testament. See, the word testament literally means means the word, it's covenant. So there's, the Old Testament is, is what's written down about the Old Covenant, and it points to the New Testament or the New Covenant that we have in Christ. Jeremiah 32 records God telling the people He's going to make a new covenant with them. He's going to write His law on their hearts. And it's pointing to the people's need for Messiah Throughout the Old Testament, that's what it's doing. It's pointing to this one who will come, giving clues to who he will be, what he will be like, where he will be born, and how he will suffer and die for the people. So the first answer is that biblical revelation is progressive, and and that's fine and good, Chase, but what about all of these really hard things? What about all these really hard things? What about when God told His people to go and kill an entire people? And not just to kill them, but to kill their livestock, to destroy their city. We we said we'd answer these questions. We didn't say we'd always like the answers, okay? Here's the reality. I think in in our culture, certainly, I think in most cultures, there are a couple of things that are just hard for us to wrap our minds around. And, and one is that God is holy. He is altogether different and separate from us. One author says this about God's holiness to describe it. It says He is unimpeachable in purity. We know that word impeachable because not with every president, but with just about every president... The opposing party now tries to find a way to impeach him. You will not impeach God. He's unimpeachable in his purity. He's holy. He cannot look on sin. And sin has to be punished. He will have wrath towards sin. If you don't believe that, look to the cross in the New Testament where the greatest act of the wrath of God is ever poured out. Look to Revelation, what he will do to the beast and the false prophet in the New Testament. God is holy and he detests sin. So that's the first thing. And then then the second is that, that we are sinful people and we live among sinful people and we've just kind of gotten used to sin. So it doesn't really seem as bad or as punishable to us as maybe it ought We've just gotten comfortable with it. 
Several years ago, shortly after I'd become the global outreach pastor here, we had an event with our team and some folks that were in, and, and I picked up fajitas from a local restaurant, and I put them in my car, and some of the juice, so to speak, from the meat spilled out into my car. I didn't, I didn't realize it. And the next day, I got up and I got into my car and I drove it to the airport. I was headed on a mission trip. And so that lovely, warm spring week, my car sat outside in the parking lot at the Austin airport, and those juices baked, if you will. So when I got in that car, it just smelled horrendous. So I cleaned it over and over again until I couldn't smell it anymore. Really what happened is I just got used to the smell. So someone new would get in my car that hadn't been in it, and they would go, oh my gosh, what is that? I'm just what are you talking about? See, I'd, I'd become accustomed to it. I'd become comfortable with it. And that's really, that's what we do with, with sin. I sold that car, by the way, in case anyone's going to ride with me. Told the people before I sold it to them, okay? Let them know what was going on. I hope they got it clean. The, the reality is, he's just not, he's not like us. And so questions, again, are good, they're valuable. The whole book of Job is about suffering and all these questions, and friends ask questions, and Job asks questions, and they're all good questions to ask. And at the end of the day, though, through all he suffered, Job says, I had heard with my ears, but now I've seen with my eyes, and I, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and repent and dust and ashes. See, at the end of the day, God is a rock to stand on, even in the midst of the questions. So this this first thing we see is that revelation is progressive. And the second thing that we see is that history is ugly in a broken world, even when it's a history of God's people. What the Old Testament is doing over and over and over again is making clear the vile reality of sin and Israel's desperate need for Messiah to save them from themselves. And honestly, it's really the sort of thing that ought to give us a lot of confidence in the veracity of Scripture. Second Peter 1, he says, We didn't follow cleverly devised tales, because if you wanted to fabricate an elaborate story about the existence of God, these are not the sort of things you'd make up. You wouldn't make the heroes, a guy like Abraham who lies to a king about his wife and says, no, 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 she's my sister, you can sleep with her so the king wouldn't kill him. You wouldn't make him the father of many nations or you wouldn't make Moses the deliverer who murdered Egyptians. You wouldn't make David the one whose line would carry the Messiah. David possibly forcibly slept with a woman, slept with her who was not his wife, and then had her husband put on the front of the battle line so that he would be killed. If you were trying to come up with cleverly devised tales, frankly, these are not very cleverly devised. See, if we wanted a cleverly devised tale, we'd have something like I watched at 4.30 a.m. this morning when my 21-month-old woke up, praise the Lord. 
I was really looking forward to coffee. I got it about an hour and a half before I wanted today. See, we watched a little bit of Pinocchio. That's a cleverly devised tale. You don't want your children to lie. You say, hey, if you, if you lie, your nose is going to grow and everybody will know it. That's a great tale. Kids, wouldn't it be awesome if when you lied, your parents' noses grew? That would make it fun. That's not what will happen. What's ironic about those cleverly devised tales, if you lie, your nose will grow. It's a lie. That's a little bit odd. That's the sort of thing you would want to do if you were going to come up with great tales. But if there is a God of truth who is the foundation for all truth, no matter how hard he may be to understand, it might be a really good idea not to lie. If there's a God of truth, even though the people who follow Him often in the Old Testament and New are full of flaws, then, then maybe it's a good idea not to lie. See, the Old Testament after the fall displays just how cataclysmic a distortion of humanity has occurred in the New Testament when it shows us redemption that's in Christ, just shows how overwhelming the love of God is. They are the same story. It's just unfolding from old to new. They're not different. They're just a progression. See, the Old Testament is about promises made and the New Testament is about promises kept. The Old Testament, it's about promises made and the New Testament, it's about promises kept. See, if it weren't for creation, if it weren't for creation, there'd be no new creation. If it weren't for the Exodus, there would be no Passover lamb, no freedom from our greatest slavery, slavery to our own sins. If it weren't for the manna from heaven, there would be no bread of life. If it weren't for the suffering servant, there would be no servant and king. The story of Hosea is the story of the love of God. Job, one of the first books ever written, helps us understand suffering and sovereignty. Without the Old Covenant, there could be no New Covenant. Without the Old Testament, there could be no New Testament. Without the first Adam, there could be no second Adam. See, Jesus could not have come from China or Sri Lanka or Indiana. He had to come from Israel. Judah's tribe... David's line, virgin born in Bethlehem, growing up in Nazareth, dying for the sins of the world. And we know he had to do all of these things because of the Old Testament. If we know this, it'll really impact how we read both the Old and the New. Because as the story unfolds, oftentimes New Testament writers are evoking words or thoughts or sayings from the Old Testament that if we're not reading it, we might not know. See, if I, if I say to all of you four score and seven years ago, it evokes something. If I had said it to pastors in Rwanda, they might have gone, what's, what's he talking about? And see, if I say to all of you, never again... Lots of different things might come to your mind, but if I say it to those pastors in Rwanda, they're going to think back 
to 23 years and, and about 50 days ago, 55 days ago, when genocide began in their nation. Never again. See, New Testament authors are evoking words and thoughts that would be familiar to their hearers because they would have been familiar with the Old Testament. That's one unfolding story. So there's this biblical progression of revelation that's occurring. And it's, it's often ugly because sin is ugly. And we're talking about the story of salvation, redemption from sin. But ultimately, and maybe, maybe the biggest issue is this, is that we don't, we don't know our Bibles well. And we don't know how to read them. You might read the Old Testament and go, oh my gosh, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. And then that's the point. That's the point. There is a way things ought to be. And we get it in the Old Testament when we read about creation. And there's a way things can be when we understand the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus as the story unfolds. And hear me, I think we ask our questions with sincere and seeking hearts. Which is a very good thing. But the scripture tells us that the heart of man is deceitful above all else. So the problem doesn't lie in God. The question comes up because of finite thinking in us. We, I think we've missed the forest for the trees. I think that's the problem in our particular culture and in our particular time. When we do take the time to read it, we often miss a point. But if we take one or two steps back, we could... Remember, this is one story with one star, one purpose, one plot, one mission, and we often miss it. See, in every age, there are good and bad things that come about because of the ways of thinking that prevails in a particular culture and time. So why do we have trouble understanding this? Is it those darn millennials? Actually, I think... The, the millennials are, are understanding this is one story a little bit better than, than people in my generation tended to do. See, modernism was a way of thinking that, that prevailed in much of the 20th century, and it was a good thing that it helped us to plumb the details of God's Word and to look at the verses and to understand how to dive into those verses and get some great application. It, it drove inductive study methods and it's good to seek to know all that we can and at the same time I think sometimes the devil sort of became in the details as it were and we missed the grand story and the scripture wasn't always read that way see the the tradition I grew up in when you read the scripture and you studied it and you memorized it you knew the chapter and the verse and and there were these old guys in church, if you said the Scripture says this, and you didn't tell them the chapter and the verse, it was almost like you were in sin for not knowing. Because we ought to know the chapters and the verses. I mean, the Apostle Paul put them there, right? Well, no, he didn't. See, chapters got added in the 13th century, and then standard numbered verse, verses as we know it, they got added in the 16th century. I, I was also... I was also told the red-letter Bible was the only one that counted. And that's the way it had always been. You know how we got those red letters, right? 
those authors of Scripture, they'd prick their finger with blood and write the words of Jesus in blood. Do you know when the first red-letter Bible came about? I was shocked to read that it was 1899. 1899, so about 118 years ago. So for the first 12 centuries of the church, there were no chapters. For the first 16, no standard numbered versing. And I don't know how the, the church made it for 1,900 years without red letters. Well, what's the, what's the point of all this? What we know is the normal, accurate, only way to read the Scripture is not the way it was always read. And, and ultimately... That, that might matter. That might matter. See, Jesus did not have a problem with the God of the Old Testament, His Father. Luke 24 recalls this story of Jesus. He's risen from the dead, and He's walking along a road with two disciples. They're headed toward Emmaus, and Jesus is there with them, and they don't recognize who He is. And in verse Verse 25, verse 25, he says, Oh, you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That's the Old Testament. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them all the Scriptures, and all the Scriptures rather, the things concerning Himself. Jesus didn't have a problem with the God of the Old Testament. We need to let that sink in. No, 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 but these questions are hard and we don't really have answers and it's not fair. And, and let me say, Jesus didn't have a problem with the God of the Old Testament. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Not one iota will be wiped away from this word. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Jesus didn't have a problem with the Old Testament, and neither did Peter and neither did Paul, for that matter. Because they understood it was one story. Kevin DeYoung says it this way, It's impossible to revere the Old Testament Scriptures more deeply or confirm them more completely than Jesus did. It's impossible. So again, the problem is not that there is this book, the Word of God. Truly, it's the story of God and His people. And we've we've got to learn as we live to read it better and better and better. Now, hear me, if if the Bible were primarily about you and me and our happiness as individuals, then the problem with the Old Testament would make a whole lot of sense. But that's not what the Bible's primarily about. The Bible tells the story of God and His people throughout redemptive history. He is the center of the show. And the whole thing, Old Testament and New, help us to remember that our only hope in life and death is what the New City Catechism says, that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what the whole Scripture is meant to teach us, that our only hope in life and in death 
is that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul and life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if this is true, if this is right, if the God of the Old Testament is in fact the God of the New Testament, which Scripture teaches He is, there is one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And it begs this question. How do we get to know and embrace the full counsel of the Word of God better? See, we, we began with the question, why does the God of the Old Testament seem so different than the God of the New Testament? But maybe a better question is, how do we get to know and embrace the full counsel of the Word of God better? Well, three fairly quick answers and then we'll be done. The first is that we invest time in the Word. You've got to invest time. Time and the Word. We live in a microwave culture, and this is a marinate book. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. See, Richard Dawkins is lauded. He's lauded by some for his attacks on the veracity of Scripture and the God of the Old Testament. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in that wicked counsel or sit in that scoffing seat. Rather, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. He's like a tree planted by streams of water, that, that person that delights in the law of the Lord. So parents, if you've got children, help them to delight in the law of the Lord early and often. We ought to be in this book. Sometimes I think mistakenly we can glorify stories of sensational sin. And, and the only thing glorious about them is that salvation came from those things. See, there are many more stories of folks that didn't get saved, and it's not real glorious. But Timothy... His mom and his grandmother had him in the Scripture early, the Scripture that could make him wise to salvation. So we've got to invest time in the Word. It's worth our time because of the fruit that it bears, because of the water that it brings to us in a world that is parched. Invest time in the Word. Invest time in the Word. George Mueller was a busy Man, he ran orphanages, he preached, he pastored in England. George Mueller said this, The first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. The most important thing I had to do, he's feeding orphans, He's ministering in the church. The most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God and to meditation on it. 
that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warmed, reproved, instructed, and that thus, while meditating, my heart might be brought into an experimental communion with the Lord. See, George Mueller was up every day early, lots of work to do. But he had to get in the Word and get happy in the Lord. See, before he started meditating on all the things in Facebook and all that fake news, he had some face time with the Scripture. He got happy in the Lord. So number one, we've got to invest time in the Word. Number two, remember that everything you read is part of a larger story and it's meant to direct our affections toward Jesus. Howard Hendricks former professor at DTS used to say that every word is part of a phrase, it's part of a sentence, it's part of a verse, it's part of a passage, it's part of a chapter, it's part of a book, it's part of a testament, it's part of the Bible. Everything you read is part of this larger story and it's meant to direct our affections toward Jesus. Eugene Peterson says it this way, that the story gives form to the sentences or the verses. And the sentences provide content to the story. Following Jesus requires that they hold together thoroughly integrated. We've got to read the verses and understand them, but we've got to read the whole story and understand it. It was to make us followers of Jesus that this text was given to us in the first place. And if either the large story or the detailed sentences are ever used for anything else, however admirable or enticing, then why bother? If this book, if it's not directing our affections toward the Messiah at the center of the story, then why bother? So as we read, we remember that this was meant to direct our affections toward Him. Then the third thing is to look in the Scripture. Look in the Scripture for how God expresses love to those far from Him, whether that's the widow, the orphan, the poor, the sojourner, or stranger in the Old Testament. Whether it's the woman at the well in John 4, or the story of the Good Samaritan. We look for how God expresses love for those far from Him, and we go and do likewise. We go and do likewise, because this book is a rock to stand on. I heard a, heard a poem last month at a graduation that a, a leader of a school had, who's a TBCer had written for his graduates. And the poem was called Twelve Stones in Canaan. And it, it told the story of a child who was the grandson of a man who crossed the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And the grandfather's taking him back to the river and they're walking in the river and everything's flowing and everything in the river is constantly changing and the, the water you're standing in now is not the water you're standing in 10 seconds from now and it's not the water you were standing in 10 seconds before. Everything's changing and then he sees in the river this stack of 12 stones. And his grandfather takes him over to the stones and says, put your hand on this. He says, this is what truth feels like. In a world that's always changing, this is like granite. 
So when I was in Rwanda, outside the church there in Basse in the northern province where we partner, there was a big pile of stones. And as I began talking to these pastors, I walked outside and I picked up the biggest one that I could comfortably carry and I carried it in. And as we began, I I put it in the lap of the first pastor on the front row and I said, I want you to feel this. Take some time to feel the cracks and the curves and then pass it to the next person. And so these 60 pastors spend about an hour doing this. And I said, now as we all feel this stone, we come to it from different perspectives. And we might feel different nuances and see some little different details. But what we all know is that this is not a pineapple. This is not an avocado. The inside of this is not squishy. It's not like an overripe banana. I said, men, remember, this is what truth feels like. Well, see, the same time I was doing that, the kids that were with us had done all their work, and they're out hanging out with other kids in the neighborhood, and my son is playing soccer with some kids, and the, the ground around there is just stony. It's just rocky. And so my son Nate is running, and he fell, and his knee hit one of those stones. And he had a different experience with the stone than those pastors did. And see, when you stumble over it, it can be painful. But when you stand on it, it's solid. So, questions are good. But in all our questions, in all our questions... This one specifically, can we trust the Jesus who trusted the God of the Old Testament, His Father? And can we fully understand and embrace this word, and can we stand on it? It's a rock, and a world that's like a river, always changing. It's a solid place to stand. So invest time in it. Always be looking for Jesus in it. And when you find the work that He's doing, go... And do likewise, be a reflection of his love in the world. God, we thank you for the truth. We thank you for a solid place to stand, a firm foundation in a world of jello. Lord, help us not just to stand on this word, help us to love it, help us to invest time in it, help us to see your son there, help us to understand it as one beautiful story and help the details of it shape our lives. And God, help us to reflect your love to those around us because we embrace the truth in this scripture. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, and you're dismissed.